0: I think all of us have within our minds and uh, within our memories uh, pictures and images and uh, the memory of uh, experiences, uh, things that we'll never forget. I don't think I'll I'll ever forget footage that I saw of the 1992 racial riots in Los Angeles where several men dragged a man from a truck and beat him and then from very close range hurled rocks and bricks at his head. Sites like that uh, are not easily forgotten and uh, I think for us thankfully they're quite rare. But such stonings were not infrequent in Bible times. Actually we read about one in our Bible reading. I think we can be certain that Stephen will receive a martyr's crown when he appears at the judgment seat of Christ, he being the first of a long line of Christian people who were willing to sacrifice their lives in the cause of Jesus Christ. And I think we can also be confident That Stephen would also receive a soul winner's crown for his life and his death, no doubt, played an important role in the conversion of a very zealous Pharisee, namely Saul of Tarsus. Now, in the early days, Christianity had no greater enemy than Saul of Tarsus. And so great was his animosity towards Christ and Christ's followers that Saul made it his personal mission to stamp out Christianity totally and utterly. And if that meant killing Christians, then so be it. Now, Stephen was a Christian. He was one of the leaders in the church at Jerusalem at that time. And Saul was there when Stephen was taken and brought before the council, recorded in Acts chapter 6. Saul was there when Stephen preached to them all about Jesus Christ. Saul was there when no one was able to resist the spirit and the wisdom with which Peter, uh, Stephen spoke. Saul was among those who, looking steadfastly upon Stephen, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel, the scripture says. Saul was there. When Stephen told them that they were guilty of resisting the Holy Spirit. Saul was there when Stephen told the nation's leaders that they were hard-hearted sinners responsible for the death of God's prophets and worse still responsible for the death of God's son, Jesus Christ. Saul was there when the mob ran upon Stephen and stoned him to death. Saul was there. In fact, he was the one who incited the mob. He was the one who looked after the coats of Stephen's killers. Lead your coats with me. Go to it, men. Finish him off. Kill the infidel. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 tells us that Saul was consenting unto his death. He gave his hearty approval to what was done. And as Saul came away from Stephen's stoning... Perhaps there were some things that began to play upon his active and attentive mind. Firstly, the facts that Stephen stated about them resisting the Holy Ghost. As their fathers did when they killed God's prophets. As they had done when they killed Jesus of Nazareth. As they were doing yet again as they were resisting Stephen's words as he was telling them what the prophets said about the coming of Jesus could it be that prophet David's statement about them piercing my hands and my feet could it be that the prophet Isaiah's reference as to a lamb being led to the slaughter could it be that these were actually actually references to Jesus of Nazareth and could it be that this strange thing that he was feeling was actually conviction Felt by one who resists the spirit of God. It may be that Saul came away from Stephen's death with a vision of Stephen's faith. Never could Saul forget Stephen's testimony before the Sanhedrin. Friendless, forsaken, alone in the arena, surrounded by hostile and bitter men. Yet Stephen was both wise and bold. Stephen's words made the courtroom ring. Saul considered himself a man of faith but his faith compared to the faith that he saw in Stephen, Stephen's faith was like a mighty ocean compared to Saul's meager cup. No doubt Saul came away from Stephen's death with an unforgettable memory about Stephen's face. It's possible that Saul had seen people die before, but not praying for their enemies. and Never with a face looking like an angel. The religious leaders gnashed upon Stephen with their teeth like so many wild animals. And yet the the more they allowed their hatred and wrath to distort their faces, the more the face of Stephen did shine. And describing that moment, the prophet Tennyson writes this. He heeded not reviling tones, nor sold sold his heart to idle moans, though though cursed and scorned and bruised with stones. But looking upward, full of grace, he prayed and from a happy place, God's glory smote him on the face. Young Saul had never seen anything like that before. No doubt these things played upon his mind, they unsettled his heart. The facts that Stephen had stated, the faith that Stephen demonstrated, the face, that face. These are the things that poked and prodded and pricked his conscience, stung him as he dwelt upon them. And yet, the greater the consternation in his soul, the greater the rage that he heaped upon Christians, quiet to all such voices, death and imprisonment to all such infidels, he alone would stomp them out. He would be the first person to oppose Christianity and the last one to become a Christian. And yet Saul became a Christian. Saul became a Christian. Surely it was a miracle. It's almost as if the mantle that fell from the dying Stephen was taken up by Saul. And it's almost as if a, a double portion of the spirit of Stephen rest upon Saul. Got three main headings tonight, they're all there on the outline sheet for you. Firstly, I want you to, I want us to consider the miracle of Saul's conversion. What are the chances of it snowing in Fiji? What are the chances of a leopard changing its spots? What are the chances of black becoming white? The chances of such things happening are the same as the chance of Saul of Tarsus becoming a Christian. Don't you imagine for a moment that we are in Jerusalem just before Saul's conversion. And here comes a member of the Sanhedrin. Let's ask him what he thinks about the possibility of Saul becoming a Christian. Saul of Tarsus becoming a Christian, he would rather eat pork. He'd rather worship Dagon. He'd rather worship Baal than become a Christian. Here comes a new widow. Arms around her fatherless children. Let's ask her. Saul's activities have led to her husband's execution. Let's ask her. Soul of Tarsus, become a Christian. It would take a miracle of God's grace to make a Christian out of that man. But every day I pray for him. For with God all things are possible. And I'm not sure if that poor widow prayed for him. I'm not sure how many Christians did pray for Paul. We're you sure that they did. But the prayers of early Christians were answered. For Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle, the greatest Christian the world's ever seen, the greatest convert to Christianity that the world has ever seen. In spite of the vigour of his personality, in spite of the vehemence of his position, in spite of the violence of his persecution, Saul became a Christian. Surely this was a miracle of God. I want us to consider the the vigour of his personality. You know, some people are pliable and easily moulded, not Saul. His personality was hewn out of rock. This man was all granite. He would not even go along. He would not even bow to the established party line, even though it was enunciated by his teacher and mentor Gamaliel. Leave the Christians alone, he said. Lest you find yourself fighting against God. If they're not of God, nothing will come of them. Just leave them be. That was his advice. Saul thought that was nonsense. Christianity coexisting with Judaism, even for a brief time, never. And with all due respect, Gamaliel, in Paul's mind, had lost the plot. He'd gone soft in the head. Saul was young, he was vigorous. He was a man of steel, inflexible, unbending. He summoned all of the power of his forceful personality for the fight ahead. He summoned all the flaming power of his natural eloquence, the thundering energy of his being, the powers of his keen mind, the drive of his unbridled will. He became a quivering, pulsating engine of destruction. His heart, soul, mind and strength fired by hatred of Jesus of Nazareth and the Death to the blasphemous infidels who would dare to name him Christ. This is the vigour of his personality. Let's consider the vehemence of his position. According to the Oxford Dictionary, vehemence means showing strong feeling. Impetuous, ardent, passionate, acting with great force. And vehement is certainly a, an accurate word that describes Paul's position in respect to Judaism. Acting with great force, Saul threw himself into the religion of Judaism, so much so that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, he says that he profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in my own nation, being the more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. In Acts 26, verse 5, he says that after the straightest sect of my own religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Philippians 3, he says he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. No one was more passionate about their religion than Saul was. Acting with great force, he threw himself into his religion. And with equal force and passion, he launched his attack against Jesus Christ, his Position in respect to Jesus Christ was equally vehement. Saul had his own ideas about what the Christ of God would be like, what kind of Messiah he would be. The meek and lowly Jesus of Nazareth was certainly no Messiah according to Saul. Saul envisaged envisaged a militant Messiah, a true son of David, a true man of war. A Messiah that would smite the power of Rome and make Jerusalem the capital of a new world empire founded upon the law of Moses. Saul was looking for a mighty Messiah, not a meek one. The very expression "a meek Messiah was a contradiction in terms. Saul wanted a Messiah who would let himself be crowned, not a Messiah who would allow himself to be crucified. The very thought of Calvary was revolting to the Jewish mind the very idea that great David's greatest son coming to an end by being crucified by Romans in the soul's mind was utterly ridiculous, preposterous idea he knew his Bible he knew what the scripture says, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree and the idea that God's son would be cursed and hang upon a tree was absolute nonsense worse than that he thought it was blasphemous Away with such a thought. And away with anyone who teaches such a thing. Put them to death. With Saul of Tarsus, there was no opportunity for discussion or debate. Such was the vehemence of his position. Let's consider the violence of his persecution. In his soul, Saul nursed such a hatred against Christianity. That he offered himself to the Sanhedrin as to be the grand inquisitor, the licensed instrument to stamp out this heretical cult. Chapter 9 verse 1 says that he continually breathed out threatening and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And these wealthy aristocratic men who ran the Sanhedrin were only too glad to have their dislike of Jesus of Nazareth confirmed by the fiery passionate zeal of young Saul it was good for them to have someone to do their dirty work for them and they gave him the authority they gave him the liberty back in chapter 8 chapter 8 back in acts chapter 8 verse 3 it says that after stephen was stoned to death Saul entered into every house hailing men and women committed them to prison and the same verse we're told that Saul made havoc of the church, the Greek scholars tell us that there is hardly a stronger expression in the Greek language that can be used in this context. The word "havoc" there was used in classical Greek to describe the ravages of a wild boar uprooting a vineyard. And years later, when Saul was giving his testimony before Agrippa, he himself said of, of 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 what he did at that time, he said, "I was exceedingly mad against the Christian." Shutting them up in prison, giving his voice against them so they were put to death, punishing them in every synagogue, compelling them to blaspheme, pursuing them even to strange cities. Saul had one compelling passion. To beat, to bully, to bludgeon every man and woman, every boy and girl who named the name of Christ. And he was in such a mood. When he went racing toward Damascus on that day when he was saved. And Saul's attendants, those that travelled with him along the road to Damascus, I I expect they probably cursed him under their breath, because at high noon, at high noon, when the merciless Syrian sun would beat down upon them from a brazen sky, any sensible man would take cover and take refuge, look for some shade to rest, to escape. The burning heat, but not Saul. He was driven by hatred. He was a man possessed. He was in a fever of rage, afraid that someone would get to Damascus before him and warn his enemies that he was coming. Couldn't bear the thought that some of his enemies might escape. And so Saul's conversion is an absolute miracle. Saul was saved when humanly speaking, everything was against such thing. In spite of the vigour of his personality, in spite of the vehemence of his positions, in spite of the violence of his persecution, he became a Christian. He was saved even though such a man could not be saved, could be he could, could not be reached by reasoning. You can't reason with such a man who is absolutely persuaded that he is right, who's stubborn as a a mule, who's fired up and burning with hatred. Saul's conversion is nothing less than a miracle. As a matter of fact, any conversion is an absolute miracle. That people like you and me, People who are born in sin, people who are shapen in iniquity, people who are are blind to the truth of God, people who are dead to the Son of God, people who are determined to go our own way. That we should ever come to hear about Jesus Christ, that we should ever be convicted by the Holy Spirit, that we should ever receive Jesus as our Savior and enthrone him as our Lord and follow him for the rest of the days of our life. This is a miracle of the grace of God. A miracle which, praise God, happens every day. It's a miracle that uh, may even happen tonight. We pray so. Secondly, I want us to consider the, the manner of Saul's conversion. You know, it seems that some people move ever so slowly into the kingdom of God. Others seem to be hurled head first. For some people, the light seems to dawn ever so slowly that uh, you ask them now, they can't be absolutely sure as to the exact moment that they were saved. But for others, the light flashes like lightning. And the truth is heard in their ears like a a thunderclap. And this was the case with Saul. I want you to notice an astounding revelation Chapter 9 verse 3 tells us that as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus and suddenly there shined round round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's very interesting that in all of Paul's later writings, and Paul wrote a large proportion of the New Testament, Paul hardly ever refers to the earthly life of Jesus. The way that Saul met him, the way that he first saw and knew that Jesus was the Lord from heaven, the first time he met him, He was sitting at the Father's right hand. He was in the position of all authority and power. And ever after that, this is how Saul thinks of Jesus. This is how Paul thought of Jesus. This is his first encounter. This is how he met him. Who art thou, Lord? Saul cried. The answer comes, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And for Saul, this was not an earth-shattering truth. This was a... A destiny-altering revelation. He knew that Jesus had lived. He knew that Jesus had died. He knew that Jesus had been buried. He knew that the tomb was empty. Probably, he concluded, along with so many other Jews, that the disciples had stolen the body away. But now, at this moment, there is no doubt in his mind, at this moment, there's no doubt in his mind that Jesus is alive. And not only is Jesus alive, but he's also ascended. He is also, in fact, the Lord from heaven. He's also, in fact, God, the Son. Saul knew the Old Testament scriptures, so he thought. But he had been blind, blind to the truth that was written there. Now he had to go back and to to read it again and reread it again and reread it again. And he saw, yes, the scriptures had Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Stephen was right, all that was predicted in the scriptures, all that was predicted in the law and the prophets concerning Christ was that Christ must first suffer and then enter into his glory. This was astounding revelation to Saul. Saul had scarcely been able to process such thoughts. When another revelation flashed in his mind and struck him through the heart. The revelation was this. That his religion. That he invested all of his life in. This religion that he excelled at. Was utterly useless. He was with all of his religion a condemned sinner in the sight of God. He was a circumcised Jew. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a firebrand of Jewish faith, a blameless man, a moral man, a law-abiding citizen. He observed the rites and the religion, the rites and the rituals of his religion. He performed the deeds of the law. but all of his religion, all that his religion could do for him was to make him an active enemy of Christ. He thought he was working for God by doing his religion. He was actually working against the Lord. Deep down in the motives and the thoughts and the intents of his heart, Saul was a sinner. And all his religion had done was confirmed him in his religion and persuaded him that he did not need a savior. As a religious man, he felt no need to confess his sin, no need to accept Jesus' death upon the cross for him. This is the danger of religion. And this is the danger that every religious person faces. To think that we can be so zealous and committed to our religion and to do so well in it that we don't need salvation. We have it. We've earned it by our own efforts. Not so. It is not so. Had Saul's religion made him acceptable to God? Look at him, he's groveling in the dust. He's unable to stand upon his feet in the Lord's presence, unable to lift up his face, indeed, unable to open his eyes, blinded by the glory of God. And this is what people need to see today that their religion is useless. There's sinners in the sight of God that's in desperate need of forgiveness and salvation. All this came as an astounding revelation to Saul. But next, notice an amazing revolution. According to the Oxford Dictionary, a revolution is a complete change, it's a turning upside down. It's a great reversal of conditions, it's a fundamental reconstruction. I think exactly what happened to Saul. Look at verse 6. It says, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? This is the second time Saul says the word Lord. The first time he says it to an unidentified voice that called out from heaven. Who art thou, Lord? Saul asks the question. And then the voice identifies himself. I am Jesus. And now knowing that he's speaking to Jesus. Saul lying on the ground says to Jesus, Lord. What would you have me to do? That's a complete change. That's a turning upside down. That's a a great reversal of condition. One moment he thinks that Jesus of Nazareth is a great imposter. The next moment he owns him as Lord and his God. One moment he's a militant terrorist Committed to the ruthless extermination of the church. The next moment, he's a new creature in Christ. One moment, he's enemy number one. Next, he's a loyal servant and an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verse 1, he's breathing out threatenings and slaughter. In verse 6, he's breathing out a prayer of surrender. It's a total revolution within Saul. He's changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, the transformation was as immediate as the revelation. As soon as he understood that Jesus is the Christ, the Saviour of the world, the Lord from heaven, as soon as he understood that his religious works were of no value, As soon as he understood that he was in a a position of being totally unacceptable to God, as soon as he found out what the scripture says was actually true concerning Jesus, at that very instant he believed. At that very instant he was saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, or Jesus' Lord, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's exactly what Saul did. He acknowledged him as Lord. He believed in his heart that God's raised him from the dead. And he was saved. Upon the basis of Paul's confession here, he was saved. Became a new creature in Christ. Old things passed away. Everything become new. The other thing I want you to notice about is this is the absolute Resignation. Notice again Paul's prayer here, verse 6, Lord, what will they have me to do? Before his conversion, Saul had served the Sanhedrin. Now he wants to serve the Saviour, and he did. Saul resolved that from that day forward there would be no rivals, there'd be no refusal, there'd be no retreat. Jesus Christ was his Lord and Master, the Lord and Master of his life. And if God had put Jesus on the throne of heaven, then Saul put Jesus on the throne of his heart. Lord of every thought and action, Lord to send and Lord to stay, Lord in speaking, writing, giving, Lord in all things to obey. Saul had been a Christian for about 10 seconds And he prayed a prayer of absolute resignation. Prayed a prayer of absolute surrender to the will of God. Lord, what will they have me to do? And as I think about that, you know, it it occurs to me that there are some people who have been saved for years who've never prayed that prayer yet. Never prayed that prayer yet. Never offered their redeemed life back to God. Never considered the Lord's claim upon their life never surrendered themselves to live for God alone and to do what God wants first and foremost. And so Saul passes off the scene. From other scriptures we learn that he goes into Arabia for about three years where he goes to Bible college and has to relearn all of his theology. And he doesn't emerge for 14 years. Until Acts chapter 12. And all the while he's preparing for his life's ministry. Lord, what will that have me to do? I wonder if you've offered that prayer. I wonder if the Lord would have you go to Bible college and prepare yourself to do whatever God wants you to do. Just to abandon your life to the will of God, whatever that might be. It's our reasonable service, is it not, to give our lives back to the Lord? The last point on the outline sheet this evening is just a brief one. Number three, the meaning of Saul's conversion. There's a lot we could say about this, but what does Saul's conversion mean? Well, it means the, the inspiration of the word of God. At least 13 New Testament books come to us from God via the apostle Paul. It's more of the New Testament contribution than any other author. And how the church has been enriched? Through the conversion of Saul. It also, meant the, it also meant the evangelization of the world. In Acts chapter 13, he goes on his first missionary journey, and then a second one, and then a third one, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the, for us, the point to make is simply this the meaning of Saul's conversion. It's simply this, that if Saul can be saved, anyone can be saved. Some of you work in the city. I don't go in there very often. Uh, but I, I, I find, I, I feel myself walking around the city like I'm an, I'm an alien. And you see, you see the hardness on people's faces. And that the, the hardness of heart is written all over their faces, And you almost despair. How could these people be saved? Well, the reality is none of them are probably harder than Saul of Tarsus. Never was anyone more anti-Christian than Saul. He was responsible for the death and the destruction of Christians in the early church. And yet God forgave him. God saved him. Yes, the Lord can and does forgive murderers. It's interesting to follow Paul's, that's what his name became, his opinion of himself through his letters, through the chronology of his letters. One of the earliest letters that he wrote was to the church at Corinth where he identifies himself there in chapter 15 as the least of the apostles. He was so humbled to think that God would call him to be an apostle, yet he acknowledged that he out of out of out of the, the other eleven, and he being the twelfth, he, he was the last and the least worthy. All the days of Jesus' earthly life, he had rejected Jesus. Others followed Jesus, not him. And so the grace of God was abundant towards him, and he knew, it, and he called himself the least of all, the apostles. But then he goes further in his life and he writes another letter to the church at Ephesus this time where he calls himself the least of the saints. Out of all the Christians that are, I'm the the least worthy one. And then right towards the end of his life, he writes a letter to Timothy where he calls himself the chief of sinners. And it seems like the further Paul goes in his Christian life, the worse he became. I don't think that's the case. I think what the case is that the further he goes, the more he realises what a terrible sinner he is. And how amazing is the grace of God to save sinners like us. And if God can save the chief of sinners, he can surely save you. No one is so bad that they can't be saved. And no one should be under the delusion of thinking that they're so good that they don't need to be saved. Philippians 3, Paul tells us he was a zealous and religious man. Never was a man so religious as he, and yet he says it was all nothing. As a matter of fact, he says it was worse than nothing. He said it was all refuse, it was all like dung. And he gets what the prophet Isaiah had been saying, that all of our righteousness, all of the good things that we can do in God's eyes, are just filthy rags. That's the best that we can offer, is just filthy rags. But the good news is if we turn from our sin and turn from our own self-effort and turn to Jesus Christ and trusting in Christ, as Saul did, we can be saved as Saul was. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you acknowledge that you are a sinner maybe you're a religious person maybe that's the reason you're in church tonight because you're a religious person but you're not more religious than Saul you certainly don't have more righteousness than he and yet he said all my righteousness is filthy rags. it's just dung it's like filthy rags and if that's the best that he can do you can't even do that well Maybe do you think you're a religious person And if all your religion has done, has confirmed in your mind that you're okay, you don't need Jesus to save you. That religion that you hold on to is actually a damnable thing. True religion is this, will tell you that you're a sinner in need of a saviour. And the saviour you need is Jesus Christ. And he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you done that? You know, it's as simple as doing that. You can do that tonight where you sit. God, be merciful to me, sinner. Lord, I need you. I can't save myself, but you can. And you promise that you will. And so I believe your promise. Have you done that? Won't you do that tonight? What a wonderful thing it is to go to church. Uh, and and come to church and then at that church service to have our eternal security confirmed. Saved for all eternity. Escaping the fires of hell and saved for all eternity simply by turning up at church one night. I mean, how good is that? What a great opportunity is here to respond to the gospel this evening. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord. And you will be saved, God promises. If you're not exactly sure how to go about that, if you need help with that, then we'd be delighted to help you. This is why we're here. This is why we exist. We'd be delighted to help you with that. And so we're going to be able to sing our final hymn. And maybe after we sing the final hymn, when the service is over, if you would like some help with that, please let me know. Let Pastor Brendan know, Pastor Christy know. Maybe the person sitting next to you, the person that brought you, just let them know. Say, could you please help me with this? I'm I'm not sure I'm saved. I need to be saved tonight. Could you please help me? And we'd be delighted to help you with that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Such is the power of the gospel. Such is the effectiveness of the work of Christ upon the cross so that absolutely anyone, doesn't matter what they've done, doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter what they've done, absolutely anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is able to save whoever comes to him. There is no power greater than the power of Christ to save. And Lord, we want to thank you for this this evening. Uh, Lord, there are many of us here this evening uh, who thank you that you saved us. And we are concerned that there might be someone here tonight who's not yet saved. Glad that they're here and even now praying that the Lord would so work in their hearts. The Lord would open their eyes and help them to see that that they would give in to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not to resist, but to, to yield to the Spirit of God convicting them. To say yes to Christ uh, who calls to them this evening. Well, this is our prayer at this time. And Lord, I do pray for uh, all of us as we go forth uh, into our week. Uh, may the gospel come very readily from our lips. Uh, people need the gospel. And whoever needs the gospel can be saved. And so Lord, give us confidence and boldness to speak the truth of the gospel to them. Uh, trusting you uh, that whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved if you saved Saul you can save anyone and may that embolden our witness for Christ this week we pray in Jesus name amen